Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 23rd episode from Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 12th of January 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show is sponsored by David W. and Robert O. and the new monthly subscriber, Ambrose A. Very much appreciated. You too can burn through your family's inheritance and send me money by clicking the donate button on the podcast website. You can also follow the show on Twitter or join the show's Facebook group. Our guest this week is Professor Stephanie Kelton, Assistant Professor of Macroeconomics, Finance and Money and Banking at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. We continue our exploration of modern monetary theory and talk about full employment and the job guarantee, the fiscal cliff and the euro crisis, and the role of bond vigilantes and inflation in times of energy crises. We join the interview as we attempt to perform Crash Course on Modern Monetary Theory, or MMT. We've covered Modern Monetary Theory, or MMT, a number of times on the show already, and I was wondering if you could give us a brief overview of the main tenets of MMT before we sail off into uncharted waters. Well... MMT is an approach within economics that tries to accurately describe the way a modern, contemporary monetary system works. And once you have that understanding, how government finance works, how banks create money and all of the rest, then it also allows you to have a discussion about the policy options that are available to let's say governments that are sovereign, that have the capacity to issue a currency that they control. So the US, Japan, the UK, Canada, Australia, these are all examples of governments that have a sovereign currency, that they are not revenue constrained, they spend in their own currency. And this provides them with fiscal space, with policy space, that countries that lack their own sovereign currency, like the countries in the Eurozone, just simply don't have available. So it's a description of the monetary system with a recognition of the policy options that are available to countries with a particular kind of monetary system that aren't available to countries that that don't have that kind of monetary system. I'm going to try and say some of the main features here and see if I leave anything out. The currency in MMT has value because you need it to pay your taxes. You can never run out of your own currency and you can never default on your own debt unless you choose to. There's also the central bank can always set the interest rate and the government debt is just an interest earning type of currency. Is that all correct? Yes. Okay. And a couple of more. <laughs> Deflation can be prevented by printing money and going into deficit spending. And the major constraint 
on printing of currency is inflation. Well, I would at least agree with the last part. You know, deflation is probably the most dangerous economic phenomenon that any government faces. And printing money is probably not sufficient to address massive deflationary pressure, no more than printing money is sufficient to start inflation. I mean, that's essentially what you're saying, right? If you print enough money, you can arrest the deflationary pressure by causing inflation. Most of the time, we would say that inflationary pressures arise, either the demand pull kind, too much money chasing too few goods, or the cost push kind, so that you've got pressure on the supply side, oil price shocks, commodity prices, and, and so forth. So um, when you have deflation, you've got essentially you know, falling prices, and when prices are falling, and finance and balance sheets and money matter, an awful lot of people are attempting in order to service debt to sell out their positions in order to service those debts. And so this just exacerbates the downward spiral. So you've got some kind of a floor under incomes to keep spending high enough. So I would, I guess I would just say printing money doesn't stop deflation, spending money, creating enough demand to keep prices from falling is how you stop deflation. I was wondering if you could tell us about the job guarantee, which is one of the major policy proposals in MMT. This is the idea that you can have full employment and low inflation at the same time, something that flies in the face of standard economic theory. Yeah, MMT recognizes that, you know, policymakers have essentially three choices. You can have an unemployed buffer stock with no job and no income. You can have an unemployed buffer stock with no job and a base wage, let's say unemployment compensation. So you have all these unemployed people, you don't require them to do anything, you don't provide them with an opportunity to contribute, they don't work, but you send them a check. Or you could have an employed buffer stock with useful things to do and an income. So of those three choices, we think it's essentially a no-brainer, that it's better to have an employed buffer stock than an unemployed buffer stock. People's skills degrade, you get all kinds of problems, both social and economic. It is a tremendous waste to society to have, in the case of the US right now, roughly 23 million Americans who want to produce, they want to contribute, and they have no opportunity to do so. If you think about it, in real terms, what we're sacrificing with that much unemployment in the economy is almost four and a half billion days a year that people could be contributing, producing, but they aren't because they're unemployed, or something like 34 and a half billion man hours every single year that we aren't mobilizing, we don't use, we don't take advantage, and it amounts to this tremendous waste with, you know, exceedingly high costs, both direct and indirect costs of having people unemployed. The most difficult people to employ are the unemployed, and within that group, the most difficult unemployed people to ultimately employ are the long-term unemployed. And so we very much see value in providing useful things for people to do, paying them 
a base wage to do those things, mobilizing these resources, there are all kinds of things that we need to do. You know, infrastructure comes to mind because infrastructure is, is in such disrepair. You know, the Corps of Engineers every year or so comes out with a report card and we are scored a grade of D overall and they say we need 2.2 trillion dollars of improvements just to get our infrastructure up to snuff so you've got all kinds of work that needs to be done you got lots of people who want to contribute and many of those people by the way are unemployed because of the housing bus you have construction workers you have manufacturing workers by the millions jobs so you have the people with exactly the skills you need you have useful things for them to do and the government because it issues its own currency faces no constraint in terms of being able to mobilize the financial resources to put these things together and, and hire these folks to do useful things. So yes, MMT is is very much supportive of avoiding all of the waste associated with unemployment. So can you tell us about what effects the Job Guarantee Employment Scheme could have on the inflation rate? So like I said before, if inflation can arise for two different reasons, it can come on the cost side, like in the 1970s, right? We had high inflation rates, but it had nothing to do with the fact that we were running our economy at full employment or that we had government pursuing policies that were designed to put people to work and all that. That came because of oil price shocks. So you can have inflation for that reason. But if we're talking about demand pull inflation, you expect to get pressure on prices, demand side of the economy, when you have too much money chasing too few goods, right? And so what, what we've always advocated is full employment and price stability. We want to keep inflation low and we think that can be done while fully employing people and resources in the economy. The trick is not to go too far, not to try to push your real resource constraints too far because you obviously if you start trying to hire more people than the market will, you're going to start bidding up the price of the labor. If you start to put more resources to use than you currently have, price pressure on those resources and that's going to feed into inflation. So we want the economy at full employment and we recognize that if you try to push the economy beyond full employment, you're going to get those inflationary pressures. But we've got tons of slack in the economy. Like I said, 23 million or so Americans who want full-time work and can't find it. We have factories that aren't operating anywhere near full capacity, so they can easily ramp up demand, produce more to meet growing demand without pressure on inflation because they have all this built-in spare capacity. So in some sense that if we were to employ these unemployed people in productive jobs, it wouldn't cause inflation because the extra money would in effect be chasing extra productive goods. Exactly, exactly. So both output and incomes are increasing and you improve your nation's infrastructure and you get all kinds of increases, lots of economic research on this to productivity. And those productivity gains then allow you to have more output per worker. And so, yeah, you know, in the late 1990s and early part of 2000, we had what I think can reasonably be described as full employment in this country. And it's the, it's the only time in the last 35 years that we've achieved what any reasonable economist would refer to as full employment. And by that, I mean 
that there was one job vacancy for every job seeker in the country. Today, there are about 3.4 Americans looking for work for every available job. So we aren't anywhere near full employment, and we almost never get there as a nation. We got there once in the last 35 years, but there are almost always two, three, four people for every job opening that's out there. So I think the evidence is pretty clear here. And we can get to full employment. We did it in the late 90s and early 2000s. And by the way, we did it without having inflation become a problem. So we had full employment because we had high productivity growth and we had very modest inflation. The official unemployment rate in the U.S. fell as low as 3.7%. We can do it. We've, we did it. We did it in the not so distant past. Dick Cheney once said that Reagan proved that deficits don't matter. US government debt doubled under the Gipper's watch. Why do you think we see the Republicans and many of the Democrats today worry so much about the size of the government debt? Oh, well, I think a very successful campaign by folks like Pete Peterson and Dave Walker and some of the other really wealthy, staunch, fiscal conservatives, the Koch brothers and the like, you know, they've thrown hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe more, behind this effort to, quote, educate the public to the problems associated with our fiscal recklessness. Now, when you pound that message in steadily and powerfully over a number of years and Americans hear over and over again the idea that the government is just like a big household and, you know, we have to live within our means and we have to tighten our belts when times get tough and we can't spend more than we take in and all of that. How could the government and that fiscally irresponsible, we're going to end up like Greece and China's you know, our banker and all of those messages that just get hammered in, people have taken them on. All the way back 20 years ago to Ross Perot with his charts talking about how if he ran his business the way the government runs its affairs, he'd be bankrupt. And and I think Americans, because the only experience that we really have as individuals is with our own personal finances. And when someone tells us you couldn't behave like that, you'd go broke, you know, it, it seems sensible, it's, it resonates and it makes sense to us. And so we get all scared because we see what's happening in Europe. And this has just been a really, really successful campaign to distract the American people from those, the proper goals that we should be working toward, you know, high employment, low inflation, a productive workforce, uh, all of the sorts of things that would make us proud to call ourselves Americans. And it distracts us from those larger goals and gets us focused on this deficit bogey. That's the answer to your question, I think. So is it some type of an ideological smokescreen for maybe disassembling some of the social welfare state? 
Well, ultimately, certainly. There's no question that for guys like Pete Peterson and the Koch brothers, they want smaller government. They don't necessarily want smaller deficits. They just want, Pete Peterson would very much like to see, for example, Social Security privatized. And so this is part of the, the story. Well, we have, a, we have a spending problem. We have an affordability problem. You know, the numbers just aren't there. We've got to start making some tough choices, shared sacrifice, all that kind of stuff, if we're going to protect and save these programs. So it's always couched in terms that, you know, it's for the, it's for the good of the program. These are necessary changes. In some cases, they'll say they're modest changes, you know, little tweak here and a little tweak there. But I'm old enough to remember 1983, Inspan Commission, and the bipartisan effort there with guys like Bob Dole working together with Pat Moynihan and putting together a deal that was supposed to then save Social Security, right? Modest changes to Social Security taxes, retirement age, and all the rest of it. They say, well, if we do these things, benefits will go down and, and you're going to pay a bit more and so forth. But this puts Social Security on solid footing and we don't have it for the next 75 years. It's safe. We've saved it. And then everyone's talking about how Social Security is broken and to go back and cut benefits some more. And, and so it's never enough for these guys. And I don't think they're going to rest until they fully undermine the system in its current form and hand it over to Wall Street. What are your hopes for the current budget deficit talks that are going on at the moment to do with the fiscal cliff? Well, my hope would be that lawmakers would recognize that as the issuer of the currency, we're not like the Greeks or the Italians or the Spanish, and we don't have a debt crisis. And our deficit is, you know, by the way, the deficit is falling today at its fastest rate since the end of World War II. Nobody talks about that, but the deficit is coming down very rapidly right now, probably too rapidly. And it, it is coming down for the season that it increases. In a bad economy, deficits explode. As the economy recovers, the deficit comes down organically. You don't have to actively do things to bring down the size of the deficit. The deficit is a reflection largely of the health of the real economy. And so I wish that lawmakers would recognize that they can never run out of money. They can't default. The U.S. isn't like Greece. We don't have a debt crisis. And that this fiscal cliff, this Budget Control Act that was passed in 2011 is what we're calling the fiscal cliff today, is just economic practice to allow, you know, these haphazard across the board spending cuts and tax increases is irresponsible macroeconomic I wish they would repeal the thing and then start having a conversation about the 23 million Americans who want to contribute and can't find work and the fact that we've got all kinds of spare capacity and all kinds of things we should be doing and then prioritize, get a set of national priorities, budget for those things, figure out what it makes sense to fund, where the government should be, where the private sector can do things and provide the, the right macroeconomic adjustments to both taxes and spending to get us there. What do you make of theories that are propounded by some of your colleagues like Professor William Black and Professor Michael Hudson, who talk of Obama's great betrayal when it comes to these negotiations? 
I think they are exactly right. And and I used to say, even when he was candidate Obama in 2007, and we heard all of these things, you know, uh, stump speeches and so forth, and he would talk about entitlement reform and tough choices. And I thought, you know, this guy is going to go after Social Security. I was really, really nervous at the time listening to some of those comments. And I think that it's become increasingly clear that the president is willing to put these programs on the table gratuitously in order to secure other concessions from Republicans. You know, he says, well, I said I was going to raise taxes on those making 250000 and and higher, and I'm willing to yield ground on some of these other things, entitlements. In the case of Social Security, doesn't add a dime to the deficit, but Republicans want it. So he appears to be prepared to give on that. It is just incredibly disappointing, I know, to Michael and to Bill Black and to me as well. Do you think that this fiscal cliff negotiations and this betrayal of the core vote of the Democratic Party might in the long term be some kind of a systemic risk to the actual makeup and support for that party? I I think it has the potential to cost the Democrats big time if they vote to raise the eligibility age for Medicare or to change the way Social Security benefits are calculated or eligibility means testing. I mean, we don't know exactly what this deal might look like, but you know, we've we've said in the past that this is something that could only be done by a Democratic president. No Republican could do this. We've seen them try and, and fail to make significant changes to undermining the, the social safety net. But a Democrat can do this. And I just hope that there is enough opposition within the party that something like this can be blocked. Because like I said, if people understand that it's not about affordability, that the Fed government can never run out of dollars. And as Alan Greenspan said, you know, he was asked by Paul Ryan a number of years ago, Congressman Ryan said to Alan Greenspan while he was chairman of the Fed, wouldn't it be a good idea if we created personal savings accounts so that Americans could invest in the stock market for their retirement and alleviate the strain on Social Security? Wouldn't this make Social Security more solvent going forward. And Alan Greenspan's response, well, I wouldn't say that Social Security is on unstable footing today because there's nothing to prevent the federal government from creating all of the money it wants and paying it out to someone. He then went on to make the really important point, which is the question is, will the real resources be there for those retirees in the future when they want to spend their Social Security benefits. So it's not about a financial constraint. The government can always make the payments. The question is, are we going to put people to work so that we're producing goods and services that we can provide rising standard of living, a decent standard of living for people in retirement? And Greenspan had it exactly right in that moment. And so that's why I think that, you know, the work that we've been doing and trying to get this message out is so empowering for people because people are willing, you know, Americans are good people. And if our government tells us we're in danger, we're going broke, 
we need to do something, everyone's going to have to pitch in and sacrifice a little bit, we pretty much say, okay, you know, I'll do my part. The shared sacrifice is selling very well because Americans are willing to shoulder some burden for the good of the country. But if they really understood that we don't need shared sacrifice, we need shared prosperity and we can have that because we control our own destiny. We're not like the Greeks and, and you, you would empower them to push back against these lawmakers who tell them there is no alternative. You know, Margaret Thatcher's old saying, Tina, there is no alternative. And people could say, no, you know, the money comes from you. And as long as spending more isn't going to cause inflation or other problems in the economy, then please don't tell me that you need to raise my taxes or slash important programs because you can't afford to keep them running. I'm Mr. White Christmas. I'm Mr. Snow. I'm Mr. Icicle. I'm Mr. Ten Below. Friends call me Snow Miser. Whatever I touch turns to snow in my clutch. <laughs> I'm too much. He's <laughs> Mr. White Christmas. He's Mr. Snow. He's Mr. Icicle. He's Mr. Tenderloin. Friends call me Snow Miser. Whatever I touch turns to snow in my clutch. <laughs> He's too much. I never wanna know a day that's over 40 degrees. If we look to the Euro today, we've got pretty much a different setup. Can you explain why the Euro is so different? And why we see bond rates for countries like Spain and Greece and Ireland get so out of control. And then this is something, by the way, that MMT economists had pointed out uh, before the euro even officially launched. So before January 1, 1999, we were having conferences and papers and publishing books and warning, along with people like Charles Goodhart, who was at the Bank of England and at the London School of Economics, and Wynne Godley, uh, who was a very famous scholar, also had been at the Bank of England and Cambridge University. And and these guys were members of a very small number of people who warned and who saw this coming and who understood exactly how things would break down and why they would break down. And in the case of Goodhart, he pointed out that the decision to adopt a common currency without also a common fiscal policy was going to lead to problems down the road and that this was unprecedented for governments to give up their sovereign currencies and adopt this foreign currency, the euro, and that this would place them in a position vis-a-vis -vis the currency where they went from becoming the issuer of the currency to becoming just another user of the currency like you and I, like a private business, like a municipality or an individual state in the US. So in the case of you know Italy, Greece, Spain, Italy, when it had the lira, had a debt to GDP ratio in the mid 1990s that's almost exactly where their GDP ratio is today, a little over 120%. But in the mid 1990s, there was no debt crisis and financial markets couldn't bully the Italian government. 
what's the difference? Why can they do that today? And the, the, and the answer is that financial markets have figured out that all of these countries, the 17 countries that use the euro, can't create the currency. And that this introduces the real possibility of default and they are pricing in and have been now for the last few years since they really recognized the, the change that took place, pricing in default risk and saying, you know, to these governments, essentially, look, you guys don't issue the currency. You're just a user. There's risk involved with lending to you because you may not be able to come up with the euros to pay me back. So if I'm going to take that risk, I'm going to require added compensation. I need a higher premium to compensate for the risk of default. Interest rates go up and financial markets have that leverage. They're in control. Whereas in the US and in Japan and in the UK, look at Japan. Debt to GDP ratio today is like 250%, two and a half times where it is in the US. Where are Japanese interest rates? Zero short term. And last time I looked, they were less than three quarters of one percentage on 10 year Japanese government debt. What's the difference? Same here, same in the UK. So we set the interest rate, we control, we issue our own currency, and financial markets recognize that, and they can't bully us the way that they can bully a currency user. And so that explains the divergence in interest rates, and it, it's all tied to the fact that these countries are users rather than issuers of their currency. All this talk then of collapse of, say, the US dollar or the Japanese yen due to the size of their government debt shows a kind of a lack of understanding of how the system operates. Yeah, I, I think clearly it does. And it's amazing after as many years as Japan has been doing what it's been doing, you know, this stop-go fiscal policy kind of ratchet up and then tighten and then you start to see the recovery and then as soon as they start to see the recovery they get worried and they tighten fiscal policy and then all the quantitative easing and all the stuff they've done and for nearly 20 years now people have been saying you know Japan's gonna hyperinflate and all this quantitative easing and so forth they're gonna destroy their currency and then when the US started down that road people issued the same sorts of warnings you know quantitative easing is gonna cause hyperinflation and the gold bugs went crazy and we just kept pointing to Japan and saying, you know, it's been 20 years. They can hardly get any inflation at all going with quantitative easing. So I think it's been an instructive lesson for us. So I, I heard it that you and a couple of your colleagues were over initially being treated like rock stars explaining all of this. Well, we've been now several times. I think the first trip was in February of this year. And this was really strange for us because we aren't actively publishing in Italian or anything like that, but they found work and I guess they thought it made a lot of sense. And uh, one Italian in particular, a journalist, covered our work and had been studying it for uh, at least a year or two, decided to put out a call to some of his followers and say, you know, there's this group of academics mostly from the U.S., but a Canadian and a French economist as well. And he said, let's bring these guys over. I think they understand what our problems are and what we can do to save Italy from, you know, the austerity and the downward spiral that, that they were so concerned about watching, you know, other members of the periphery. So he said, let's bring these guys out, help me raise some money. 
And the next thing he knew, he had so much money and so many subscriptions that he was writing to us and saying, I can't find a venue large enough to host this. And he said, I'll get back to you. And then when he got back to us, he said, okay, I've got a basketball arena in Rimini, Italy. That's where you're going to be speaking. We all thought this was completely crazy. And when we when we arrived, you know, we were there for three days in this basketball arena in front of a crowd of more than 2,000 ordinary Italians who, you know, reached into their pockets and contributed 40 euro a piece to raise the money to fly us out and put us up and pay for the translators and the venue and the whole thing. And they sat in little metal folding chairs for almost three full days, listening to the five of us talk about economics and the Euro and the problems. And it was just an unbelievable experience. We, none of us had ever experienced anything like it. And we've been back now. I was just there last month in the southern Italian region at the invitation of two governors who wanted to capitalize on the momentum. And they invited us. And I went with a colleague of mine here from UMKC. And we spent another three days, this time working more closely with journalists, Italian academics, and a very large number of policymakers who came. We actually had the event in the parliament. We were right there where the members of parliament for three days. So the Italians are very, very serious about these ideas. With your understanding of how monetary systems work, what are your expectations for how the Eurozone is going to play out over the next number of years? Well, that's a good question because at this point, it's no longer about economics. It's, it's just purely a matter of politics. And I, I'm not a political scientist and I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I think the Germans are being, to recognize that if you impoverish your best customers, it ends up hurting you as well. And so, you know, Germany's very hard line against the periphery saying, you know, you've got to impose austerity, we'll, we'll give you access to euros and we'll, we'll make these funds available to you so that you don't default. But in exchange, we want a pound of flesh and we want to see pensions cut. And we want layoffs and we want privatization of national assets and all the other things. And they're crushing these economies. Austerity is having a devastating effect on economic growth and employment and so forth. And so all of a sudden, these economies are in worse shape than they were before austerity was imposed. And now they can afford to buy fewer goods produced by Germany, and you're starting to see signs of this in, in the German export numbers. And so if Germany begins to realize that its policies are actually hurting the German economy, then maybe you begin to see a change. I just don't know to what extent the Germans will play along with this. And everybody knows that they're really in the driver's seat here. The ECB has pretty well addressed the solvency problem. So, you know, this thing can go on for an awful long time, as long as the ECB stands ready to guarantee government debt and provide the euros, this thing can go on for an awful long time. But it's the policy, it's the austerity, it's the 50% youth unemployment in Spain, people will only take so much. And so the, the possibility that voters rise up and say no more 
to these austerity programs, that's what could ultimately, I think, bring about an exit of one or more countries and, a, and an end to the euro. So in essence, it's a question perhaps of political power and we might see new power structures evolve in some of these countries that are going through these type of depression levels. It clearly, I don't think you're going to see another decade of the, these levels of unemployment, you know, in places like Greece and Spain. It just, I just don't see how it can be tolerated. I've been waiting such a long time Looking out for you but you're not here What's another year? I've been waking such a long time Reaching out for you But you aren't near What's another year? What's another I'd like to get an understanding then for what are the causal mechanisms for a currency crisis under such a monetary system as, say, the US dollar. What could cause an interest rate spike then in, say, the government US debt, for example? Well, the Fed raising interest rates. That's the way interest rates ultimately are going to rise. Short-term rates are obviously set by the Fed, and we've said all along that the Fed could operate anywhere it wants to along the yield curve. It's just that historically it's confined itself to the very short-term interest rate. But with the various bond-buying schemes, we've seen the Fed move into sort of uncharted territory and go out into the longer portion of, of the term structure. And clearly, it can buy assets anywhere it wants along the yield curve and compress rates and it sets the overnight rate as a matter of policy. So long-term rates are largely a reflection of where market participants think the Fed is going to move short-term interest rates in the future. So when the Fed does begin to raise short-term interest rates, market participants will start to form expectations about how much higher they'll go and when, and longer-term rates will reflect that. But you're not going to get bond vigilantes coming in and causing a huge spike in U.S. interest rates. It just happened. Was there a, a market-driven spike in government bonds during the oil shocks at all? Well, Tom, to be honest, I don't, I don't remember exactly what happened in 71 or 73. Rates got very high in the U.S. under Paul Volcker, but that was absolutely a policy. I mean, what Volcker did, and that was in the 70s, but it was in the later 1970s, and I don't recall it being associated with an oil price shock at a point in time, but inflation had been high from previous oil price shocks, inflationary pressures were there, and Volcker decided that he was going to tackle inflation in the U.S. by trying to control the rate of growth of the money supply. And this is sometimes referred to as the great monetarist experiment because the Fed 
cease targeting short-term interest rates and move instead to trying to target the rate of growth of the monetary aggregate. And they started with, and I don't know, you know how familiar some of these terms are to your listeners, probably many of them know these measures of the money supply, M1, M2, M3. But the Fed said, you know, being good monetarists, if we want to reduce the inflation rate, we have to reduce the rate of growth of the money supply because inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So they attempted to rein in the growth of these monetary aggregates. And when they did that, they let go of the interest rate as a policy variable. So interest rates began to climb and the Fed did nothing about it because they were preoccupied with trying to control the rate of growth of the money supply, which, by the way, they never successfully did. Uh, they failed over and over. They gave up trying M1 and began trying to target M2 and then threw their hands up and said, okay, this isn't working. Maybe it's M3 we should be targeting. Well, eventually, interest rates got so high that inflation came down because the Fed caused a recession. And so economic activity simply collapsed and, and inflation ultimately did come down, but it came down the ugly. Uh, but you're right. This was a period of time where interest rates got very high. And they got very high because the Fed allowed them to get very high. I suppose what I'm trying to understand for myself is that let's say we have a sustained period of high inflation caused by energy pressures, like, say, a new round of oil shocks may be brought up by supply constraints of some type. And in this scenario, let's say our government interest rate on the bond set by the Fed is perhaps two or three percent, say. And let's say the inflation rate jumps to 10%. Now, somebody who has a bond that's paying 3% is basically losing 7 cents on the dollar every year. In that kind of scenario, would these investors, would they sell these bonds into the market and try to get maybe a hard asset instead? And could that put pressure on the value of these government bonds? Well, I guess you have to think about whether there's a buyer on the other end of that transaction, right? I mean, they're, in order for these investors that are holding bonds paying 3% to get out from under them, there's got to be someone on the other side of that trade who's willing to get in. And yeah, I suppose you could see some pressure on interest rates. But again, if the Fed is there and doesn't want to see interest rates rise, the Fed can simply step in and be the buyer of those securities, right? I mean, as they're doing today, the Fed ultimately can always set the interest rate at whatever level it chooses anywhere along the yield curve. So it doesn't have to allow markets to do what you're describing. If we look through that lens of these inflation shocks, does this explain why perhaps we saw a large spike in the price of gold in the 70s and the early 80s, maybe as a fear of a possible currency breakdown. Yeah, I, th I think that's that's probably right. We hear some talk on the on the internet or on blogs and stuff about people fearing, say, China sell all their US bonds. How unlikely is this scenario? Well, I think it's very unlikely. You're not going to divest yourself of a trillion dollars in US treasuries in one fell swoop. So it would have to begin gradually. And once I think it became clear to markets that that's what Chinese were doing, the price of the remaining bonds that they hold would obviously go way down. So I don't see that it's in China's interest to begin the process. But ultimately, I think the more important question is, 
why does China have all these treasuries in the first place? And the answer is that they prefer holding treasuries to holding non-interest bearing accounts at the Fed. They're better than holding dollars. And the reason they have all the dollars in the first place is because their growth strategy has been so highly dependent upon exporting goods to the U.S. So until China changes its growth model and decides that it doesn't want to be a net exporter, it's going to end up with dollars. And so long as it ends up with dollars, it's going to prefer to convert those dollar holdings into what amount to savings accounts at the Fed, treasury bonds. So I don't have the hand-wringing problem that a lot of people do with Chinese holding trillion dollars in U.S. treasuries. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, Professor Kelton. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Everybody was Kung Fu fighting. Those kids were fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. But they fought with On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sun Ra and his orchestra, Lonnie Donegan singing a version of the Woody Guthrie classic Hard Travelin', and the Snow Miser from the television Christmas special The Year Without a Santa Claus. You also heard Johnny Logan singing What's Another Year? And you're now listening to Carl Douglas singing, officially the greatest one-hit wonder of all time, Kung Fu Fighting. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Now we're into a